0: Wow, good morning. So I found myself uh, some new books while I'm currently trying to figure out how to discuss, explain, share interdependence, or dependent origination. Oh, there's so many definitions. but I came across this book called "Unlimiting Mind." It's called the radical, uh, Radically Experiential Psychology of Buddhism. I haven't even looked up about the author. It's from Wisdom Publications. I find it funny. They say it was produced with environmental mindfulness. Very funny. Very cool. Um, but so I'm researching this interdependence. So uh, I just happened to... Uh, go through the chapter in this book on interdependence, went through it again, uh, and the next chapter, entitled, Disgusted with Dharma, attracted my attention. Now, this is not uh, an uncommon thing, so let me just mention what he says here. So, he says you're happily reading, talking about using your discernment, um, right, uh, to see how things really are, and he says, uh, the Dhamma goes on and says that one should abide in the utter disgust for the ag- oh, excuse, excuse me, one should abide or reside in utter disgust for the aggregates. And uh, so he goes on and says, "What but he talks about how um depending on the uh depending on the tradition um he uses uh what's very obviously say um uh, a tantric Buddhist that might use uh for their Vipassana practice their insight practice that might use um interesting he says uh they contemplate death, the disintegration of the body in cemeteries. Hey, we're Buddhists here. You know, decompose is fine. We don't, we're not bothered by this. And this gets to my point, right? Notice how he's talking about how to the West, it's a little abhorrent, we would think of bodies decomposing uh, in a cemetery. Uh, especially for this gentleman, which by the way, it's by Andrew Olensky, I'm not sure... Again, I haven't looked him up, but I just find it funny that he's talking about how right, monks and nuns are encouraged to contemplate death, the disintegration of the body in cemeteries, and other such, well, monastic things, right? He himself is showing his own aversion to not only what you're supposed to be uh, looking at, right, insight, but the reason why. The idea here is not to turn away from these experiential phenomena. It's also using them to see the nature of existence. What I'll use as well, and he doesn't mention, is the Chinese will uh, commonly use contemplation of bile and blood and feces and urine, right? But what is this about? Right? And I was thinking to myself, geez, I'm, you know, I could really try to explain this because the idea of the disgustingness of aggregates is interdependence. It's to give you an idea at once, not the interdependence of all things per se, but the interdependence of our perceptions. Right? So at once, we, are, we have an aversion to poo and pee yet we don't have an aversion to life and death. What what do you mean? No, no, yeah. If we are so um, revolted by humanity, by everything that is us, why is it we're not revolted by uh, being trapped uh, to this wheel of birth and death by our own choice, right? But what I loved is how he explained this idea, right? So he followed the root of the disgust, being nibida. He said, uh, the root is nis, without, and vind, to find. So how do you get without finding uh, disgust? How do you get from without finding disgust? So he goes on and he talks about a dog who stumbles across a bone. It had been bleached in the sun, obviously, without any flesh or marrow. So without any satisfaction for the dog who was out searching for, um, well, to satisfy his hunger or to satisfy um, his uh, desire for uh, meat, uh, flesh, or uh, uh, marrow goes on to say that gnawing on the bone for a while the dog determines he's not finding any satisfaction in the bone thus turns away from it in disgust. I find that interesting, but you're right. That's the disgust we're talking about. The fact that we will consider our bodies a temple when it's really a bag of bones, a sack of water. Right? So it's not our bodies themselves that are disgusting. It's our incessant obsession with finding satisfaction in what we already should know is rootless. Empty of inherent satisfaction. That's where we go back to the Four Noble Truths, and why we are talking about not finding. And he goes on and talks about that the dog was enchanted by the prospect of gratification as he scraped away furiously at the bone. Same as us. Right? So the disgust in the aggregates, the disgust in everything that is uh, the phenomenal world, all five skandhas are inherently dissatisfying. why not because we simply desire, but because we desire satisfaction that is impossible to achieve by the means we attempt uh so. Looking at these aggregates to solve our happiness or our dissatisfaction, that is what's disgusting. Same as the dog who spends an afternoon gnawing on the bone. He may have found some pleasure in the gnawing, but with his his initial desire for meat being unsatiated... The dog turns away in disgust. Same as people. When you endeavor to find meaning in, for example, the common consumption economy in the West, many people may or may not come to the conclusion, but certainly suffer from a malaise, uh, an emptiness. A hollow, sad uh, longing, a disgust that's root can be traced back to our own wish to find within our own hollow existence, arguably a satisfaction that will only result in additional dissatisfaction. The the the, the, the truth of it is is the disgust is not, as, as he said in this paragraph, when we turn away from the aggregates in disgust, we're not disgusted with the bone, as in the dog's case. We're not disgusted at Um, the aggregates of this phenomenal world, we turn away in disgust, in our own desires, our own delusions, our own lack of awareness of the truth, right? We start like the dog and gnaw away at that bone. Deluding ourselves into thinking every time we come up empty. Deluding ourselves into thinking that well the next, the next, uh, chaw the next, uh, bite, is what is going to satisfy our desires. We never stop, and realize our wasted effort is the root of our suffering. Not till we fail do we then turn away in disgust. But are we disgusted at our ego that has deluded us into thinking that this is uh, the source of our possible happiness rather than the source of our guaranteed suffering? No, we turn away in disgust at our failure to satisfy our desires rather than turning away in disgust, at our own ignorance, our own laziness, our own delusion, the lies that we allow our ego to tell us, but at the same time, when that inherent awareness awakes, same as the dog. When you've been chewing on that bone all day and you realize you're never going to get any meat You need to turn away in absolute disgust at your own delusion, your own wasted efforts. You're not disgusted at the bone. You're not disgusted even at your desires for happiness because that's natural. You should be disgusted at where you try to source that happiness. And this goes back to that gone gone beyond, beyond these deluded beliefs that you're going to find the satisfaction and the healing in this world of transient objects and fleeting uh, desires and emotions. You need to reside, abide in that awareness, in that discernment. This is not a special or a different place, not a heaven in the west or the east. It's not a Shambhala, a hidden land of snows somewhere. This place resides within yourself. It's a place where you realize that your own discernment is simply understanding that desires have to be rooted in a selfless, compassionate Intention. The idea of karma is uh, an internal struggle, one of right effort and right action. Not only do you do the right thing, but you must do it for the right reasons. And that goes for the awareness. Not only must you focus and be aware, but you must use right... Uh, understanding to discern the difference between what is right. Now, what is correct? What is selfless without harming yourself? What is um, what is a choice that uh, helps to minimize the impact ego has on your life, uh, but at the same time... Uh, not allowing the ego to delude you into thinking you're being selfless uh, when, in reality, uh, your ego is simply reinforcing itself. It's it's a it's a middle way, right? As the Chinese called the golden mean, not insufficiency and not excess, right? So it's a a not self. What does that mean? Anatta. I Meaning, it's not about the self. Remember, just like the word we looked at earlier, atta being not a self, the self, but that thing that we call our self. What is that thing? It is the tool, the upaya, the ultimate efficient means. But at the same time, it's also what is keeping us from residing in that awareness. It's also what tends to pull us back into that deluded, illusionary state. One of the most difficult things that can be done is to achieve that awareness and risk that liberation by continuing to walk among the uh, well, the other prisoners of Samsara. So I really found this interesting: that the Buddha uses the word in his teachings, not that a novice meditator should practice by regarding things as disgusting. Right? It's not an idea like Hamlet, where the idea is to get one to be just disenchanted with life. Because that's another issue I find, um, I find just, once again, doesn't jive. It's that same idea that if the teachings are designed to help us uh, manage uh, in the world... Manage our dissatisfaction, manage our disappointment uh, with uh, our existence, our desires, and our um, well, the skandhas. If the idea is to reduce your suffering in this existence with, of course, an end goal to step off the wheel of becoming and no longer be subject to the birth and death cycle, but before that. The majority of us are just looking to suffer a little less. If that's the goal, how are you succeeding if you sequester yourself away from the world? Right? If, if the idea is that all of the phenomenal world is disgusting, abhorrent, and you're to turn away from it, this is where this idea of monks and nuns and people who right, they, they, they keep to a very specific social circle um, because they talk about toxicity or like minds or a sangha. I need to remind people at this point that that's aversion, right? The idea is to have the power to be unaffected by good and bad. The idea to reduce your suffering in this existence means to better manage your reactions and the outcomes, and the cause and effect. Uh, Eliminating outflows is an idea of not allowing... uh, thoughts, or citta, minds, to be born. It's not an idea of not um, interacting with the world. I find it um, just like uh, obsessions with rituals and ceremony and dress. It's one of the ten fetters. Same as many sects will obsess over a mantra alone. Once again, simply one of many of efficient means, upaya, or as has been said many times, um, sentient beings are numberless, as are the entries to the Dharma of Nirvana. That doesn't tell you that the secret to liberation is to, you know, hide away from the world. I mean, I'll go back to the great song, the Bhagavad Gita, which is Krishna talking to Arjuna. And Arjuna didn't get this either, because Krishna explained to him about Jnana Yoga. That's this contemplation yoga. That's kind of this idea of sequestering yourself away from the world and sitting, contemplating, living as an ascetic, essentially. But Krishna told Arjuna, yes, that is a path, same as Bhakti, which is reverence." right, um, um, devoting yourself to, uh, to uh, an archetype deity. For myself, I use the Lord of Compassion, but I use compassion, not the Bodhisattva, right? Compassion is what I use as my tool for visualization and devotion, not an individual, not a uh, being uh, greater than myself, So that's why Krishna once again explains to Arjuna that the ultimate is karma yoga, action. Why? Because, one, of course, how can you liberate yourself from suffering in this world by just stepping away from it? You've just postponed your suffering. You haven't... um, ceased it. That's why, when I read the Heart Sutra, it speaks of no end and no beginning to things like sufferings and ills. Because when we discuss about an end or a beginning, this, again, is the cyclic existence. The idea is to step off that cycle of birth and death of suffering, of pleasure, this duality approach. Again, we're looking for that Madhyamaka, this middle way. And I laugh because I see often that Yogacara, Chittamatra, Madhyamaka, even the Nalanda tradition, this this logic-based philosophy, this prescription to liberation, is far too simple, it seems. And it's either complicated by those, again, as the Buddha feared, were unable to grasp the concept of interdependent origination. Not because of their faculty, but because of their ignorance. Right? And not the type of ignorance that... um, is a lack of wisdom, but an inability to set their own ego aside for long enough to understand that it is also the source of their suffering. It's it's as simple as that. So, someone who is so utterly convinced of themselves, that Atta, that uh, aggregate of pieces, a collection of disparate parts they like to uh, name. The Atta is at once the source of their suffering and their liberation, but the Buddha considered. Uh, remaining, what at the time would be considered a Pratyaka Buddha, um, often uh, mistranslated as um, a lone Buddha, the real uh, meaning is um, they achieved enlightenment on their own. So arguably, uh, Gotama, who I'm speaking of now, Shakyamuni, um, achieved uh, liberation alone. Or depending on the tradition, he had a mentor in uh, Samantabhadra, the Great Strength, Bodhisattva Buddha, uh, and Maitreya, which is interesting. But right, uh, as well. It just depends on the tradition you talk about, because there were Buddhas, Buddhas before, and there'll be Buddhas since. Neither, neither at all, here or there. My point is the Buddha was self-awakened but considered uh, not teaching like many had before him uh, because uh, he didn't think we had either the capacity or the desire to understand how simple the teachings were. Right? In fact, I can even quote from that if you, if you may. Bear with me. I quote. And it's difficult because uh, the seven-ish weeks or so after his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, there isn't um, a shared uh, itinerary of what he actually did, uh, but they did actually for because of the tradition of pilgrimage they did say, well, he spent a week here, and he spent a week here, and he spent a week here. I mean, uh, even going back, what, 1,500 years ago, there's documentation of Chinese scholars seeing this same um, collection of holy sites uh, around Bodhigaya. And he says uh, he spends the next seven days there under the Bodhi tree, experiencing the bliss of emancipation. And I love how this author... He wrote a short biography about the Buddha, John S. Strong. He goes on, in brackets, to say, or alternatively, formulating the law of interdependent origination in those sources in which he has not yet worked it out. Because uh, if you go and look at um, the Gautama's uh, enlightenment, uh, you will see that he spent uh, his uh, first 30 days in enlightenment. Some people say he ate nothing after the milk uh, he was given by the young lady. Initially, uh, when he stepped away from the aesthetics, Uh, there is some uh, mention that he may have uh, sustained himself on hemp grain during that time. But after his uh, month or near month of Uh, meditation under the Bodhi tree in Bodhigaya, he spent seven days in silence. Again, some people say contemplating whether he would teach uh, or how uh, some say that he uh, just remained in the bliss of uh, his awareness, his, his, I mean... It sounds weird um, because it sounds like he was residing in the attainment, um, but just imagine the joy that you actually can receive from helping someone, particularly uh, when you're completely removed from the situation. If you're able, for example, to help someone without their knowing, just the sheer bliss that you can enjoy because you don't have your ego screaming. You can purely... It's actually... um, uh, Like, for example, uh, what is... I can't remember the Sanskrit or the the Pali word, uh, but we commonly translate things like karuna, compassion, ahimsa, um, no harm, uh, metta, um... You know, there's a lot of these, but there's one very important that's always mattered, uh, meant a lot to me. Boundless joy is, is a big one. But I also love, and I can't remember, I'm going to have to go look it up, but you can find it yourself. It's a poly word that actually means um, joy for someone else, right? How many of us have known people who are incapable of being happy for someone else because of their jealousy, their envy, their self-interest, their, you know. So these, these are these boundless um, energies, right? You can't have too much um, uh, equanimity, for example, right? You can't um, see yourself as one with everybody too much. You can't, have too much compassion for yourselves or others you can't you can't have too much spirit of do no harm you can't have too much loving kindness right because uh, the point at which kindness uh, oversteps uh, your loving uh, steps in and and reins that in and uh, when your loving wants to uh, smother Uh, Your kindness steps in and uh, reigns that in. And he goes on, this author, about the Buddha. Some uh, say that people in this world are given to passion and pleasure and are generally ignorant so that they will not be able to understand such things as interdependent origination and the need to destroy desire and the elimination of ashravas. Ashravas wasn't translated in here, but it's interestingly not dissimilar from the skandhas or the aggregates, right? So just think, uh, destroy desire and the elimination of not, um, not dharma, because that would be an elimination of everything. And again, that just makes things more confusing. But it's the elimination of seeing things as good or bad, right? So, walking down a street, being bothered by the noise of a vehicle, you shouldn't let it bother you, right? The flavor of something arguably shouldn't be good or bad, it just is. That's the idea. So, the elimination of the suffering. Of the delusions that result from aggregates, uh, and as I said, um, he says that he considered uh, rema- becoming or uh, remaining. I would argue that he was uh, Gautama was one hundred percent a Pratyaka Buddha because he was self um, enlightened. Uh, because if if the uh, if you were to get any help. Doesn't matter the tradition. If you were to get help from previous Buddhas or any of these um, dimensional body Buddhas, for example, uh, if I were to achieve uh, an enlightenment experience, it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility that, say, uh, an emanation body of Avilokiteswara might appear to me because that is uh, my... Uh, archetype deity, in a sense, compassion. Uh, Abylo is the embodiment of compassion. Chanrezig in Tibetan. Uh, not out of the realm of possibility, but again, as I said earlier, it is not an individual. It is not even the Buddha. The Buddha is simply um, a representation of this, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, The principle, right? So, when we're looking at elimination of ashravas, we're looking at the principle of no longer allowing things to have power over you. You will be living within the samsaric realm, but you must eliminate the power they have over you. Same as your ego. We're not eliminating your ego. We're eliminating the power it has over you and thus cause you this dissatisfaction. Same as the dog with the bone. The bone is not the problem. The dog is not the problem. His desire for meat was not the problem. His deluded belief in two big things. One, that its ego is looking out for its best interest and is telling it the way it is. And two, his deluded desire and belief that he could get satisfaction from that bone. That bone is the ashravas. right? So the bone's not the problem, right? Your, your mind is not the problem. Your ear consciousness, your eye consciousness, not the problem. It's the reactions, your attachments and your aversions that arise as a result of these same. Right? But as I said, in spite of the Buddha having these reservations that we are unable to understand, let alone achieve this simple liberation, the stories say that Brahma appeared to Gautama and implored him to agree to teach, pointing out that there are indeed some beings who would be able to understand and attain enlightenment, arguing that otherwise the land, by extension, the whole world would be left benighted condition and had been in. Uh, Plain and simple, it is that apathy that keeps us, one and all, from walking that path, staying on that path, helping others on that path and living as examples on that path. It is this same deluded suffering of desire that we need to understand such things but it's also these same such things that keep us from understanding such things. Right? Because... As I said, and I meant this is going to be a separate uh, discussion, uh, the influence of interdependent origination on the self. Interdependent origination is an important aspect to understand. Not so we can understand the phenomenal world, but so we can understand the self. Atta. Atta is not a thing. It is a label we attach to an ephemeral uh, ghost. When you break down yourself, there is nothing within you that you can point to as specific a self. What that means is... We've applied this arbitrary label to something that is no different than anybody else's um, arbitrary label. But it's that impermanence, it's that uh, inherent dissatisfaction in all efforts that we uh, try until we realize that that ego is the means to liberation as well as uh, the main source of our suffering. So, once again, the ego was the reason why even the Buddha didn't believe we were capable of even understanding these simple truths, let alone achieving the same liberation. Right? Even the Buddha suffered from this same ego trap. So he spends a month under the Bodhi tree achieves a liberation, fights off Mara, as some of the stories go. Even sat for seven more days in silence, torturing himself, wondering whether he had the ability or the understanding to teach this to other people. But more importantly, he questioned whether we had not just the desire, but even the capacity to understand this, he had achieved it, arguably depending on the stories, others had achieved it as well upon his understanding and his his uh, his, uh awakening. he should also have understood that it's inherently within all of us to achieve this same liberation, yet he still questioned whether he was the only one able to achieve this great uh, state and maintain it. So, on that note, uh, we'll leave it. Uh, The idea is uh, we turn away from Dharma in disgust. Not in disgust of the Dharma, but in disgust of our own delusion, and ignorance, our own wasted effort, our own farce, right? If we, like the dog, were to just look at the bone, right? That's the insight. So look at the bone first and see there's nothing there. It's been baking in the sun for months. There isn't a shred of meat or marrow or flavor to be had. If you're bored and you just want to gnaw on something, by all means. But, if you're like many of us, and you're tired of just spinning your wheels, then it's time to use that calmness and insight. Calmness not to get um, distracted by either your hunger or how attractive the bone might be or how convincing your ego might be or how some of these um, uh, latent impressions, many, many, many latent impressions that reside within your mind, it is time for us to see their root because the only goal worth um, working towards is this liberation everything else is delusion therefore a waste of time so i'll leave it at that well this is crazy i've never done this before i've published the episode and we were just discussing it because i listened to a little bit make sure the audio is fine don't listen to the whole thing i mean my poor wife Just to listen to me yammer on all day as it is. Trust me, I only record about one one one-hundredth of what I yammer on about in a day. So I was just going on and discussing with her about um, how disgust is used in Buddhism. And it's interesting because I found someone who wrote an article. It's actually Buddhism for Vampires. But they weren't wrong. But I just picked out one quote, which is really great. I find it interesting because it's... Once again, it mentions Zogchen, so the Tantric Buddhism. Um, I'm not going to bother reading further because it does seem like he, he pretty much understands this, right? So he talks about um, aversion is a natural tendency, right? You don't want to touch things like, you know... Uh, poop and pee and pus and blood because of possible disease. Same as corpses, open wounds. We have an aversion to bugs, spiders, you know, because they can either be harmful or, right, again, pathos- pathogens, diseases. And it goes on and talks about that many religions have co-opted the same idea, making things dirty or immoral. Disgusting sex is dirty or defiling, right? Excretions and and he goes on, uh, he mentions, and I and I'm I've heard of it, so that's fine. Um, I won't make too many mentions, but he talks about how some monks might use um, visualizing uh, women as and he says rotting, he or she says rotting sacks full of revolting substances. He's not wrong, he or she is not wrong, they are not wrong. I mentioned this how they'll use pus and blood and feces, urine, you know, sweat, these I, these natural functions uh, to encourage that aversion. But let me remind you, because he goes on and says, discussed in early Tantra. I won't bother reading that because that happens to be my forte, and this is why I mentioned it in the first place. But he puts a quote, he or she puts a quote at the beginning, from the Heart Sutra, from the Pranaparamita Hiradaya Sutra. Sutram. There is no purity and no impurity, right? So, just a previous paragraph where it talks about how, and it's probably not unlikely that it would be a pure land or some other sect that might misunderstand this idea of using disgust reversion as meditation as part of your uh, insight of Vipassana. Because you can even use your shamatha, right? Because if you think about rotting corpses, you think about people you care about as rotting corpses, that will require some calmness, right? But neither here nor there. The point is, the quote from the Heart Sutra is, there is no purity and there is no impurity. So, let's go back. When the the instinct is to be revolted, to be disgusted. Aversion is our innate reaction to some things and we attach to others. There is no purity and no impurity. The idea is not to uh, enforce the idea of revulsion or disgust. In something, the idea is to see no difference, right? The idea for a monk to visualize women as rotting sacks full of revolting substances is not to think of them as revolting. Again, as I said, the disgust is misplaced. The reason to visualize women as rotting sacks full of revolting substances is because every creature is a rotting sack full of revolting substances. And the goal is not disgust of that fact, but to remind you how disgusting it is that you were ever tempted by a revolting rotting sack. Right? It's your desire That is abhorrent. It is not the woman. So, it's difficult, but once again, desire is often misplaced, as is disgust, right? Desire can be beneficial, as can disgust. In this case, it's not for you to reinforce uh, this horrible situation we're all in, just a bag of bones and water walking around, waiting to die, is to remind us the impermanence of everything and, most importantly, ourselves. And the disgust is in ourselves, seeing us as anything but these impermanent, ego-driven bags of bones, right? There is no purity and no impurity. And until we achieve that state of no birth and no death and No birth and no death. And no non-birth and no non-death. Ridiculously confusing. But the idea is not to reinforce duality. The idea is to no longer be a subject to that duality. No longer uh, suffering from these latent impressions that have reinforced this idea that one thing is good and another is bad. It's designed for you to see the nature of reality for what it is.